Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Something Something Podcast. My name is Eric Kasloff, and with me, as always, is Larry Sands. How's it going, Larry? Oh, man, everything is excellent, Eric. Everything is excellent. Um, How are you doing? I'm doing quite fine, man. Just trying to stay busy with the 87 projects we're working on at once. (laughs) I know. know. I know. But there's something cool I want to talk about. Um, And it, again, goes back to professional wrestling for me (laughs) and which is anyone who knows me one of my biggest passions and in wwe there is a third brand called nxt and that's where they take guys from the indies or collegiate athletes and train them up to be wrestlers it's called nxt because it's next Now, obviously, I don't work in wrestling yet, but I will one day. Um, I do work in the film industry. And I wanted to do something where we could spotlight younger talent who haven't done much yet. Not to demean the stuff they've done, but, you know, haven't had a chance at Mm -hmm. getting to a break. So, we're going to be starting a thing. I'm, right now, I think we're calling it Who's Next or Up Next. We're going to finalize that, but yeah. we'll be focusing mainly on people in the film industry, whether they be actors, filmmakers, writers, mm-hmm. anyone along those lines who's still waiting to do something and they could hit us up on our Instagram for the show or on our individual instagrams we already have the ball rolling on some people it's just figuring out a time for them and i am very excited about this i am too you know they're they're for first of all we got a really cool platform to introduce people to to um established like authors and filmmakers and actors. Um, And I think it's a really, really great idea to be able to kind of introduce like the next group of, of filmmakers, you know, it's, and Eric, you and I both know this. And I think people that listen to our podcast know this. It's, it's really kind of difficult to break into filmmaking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And unless you know, people, which is fine. And I'm all about like, you know, I'm all about people going, well, they help me. And I, you know, I think yeah. people need help and because what, what it really becomes down to or what it comes down to rather is anybody in the world could help anybody. Tom Cruise could come up and go, Hey, here's Larry. Here's Eric. Yeah. But exactly. once your foot is in the door, what do you do that, that makes a difference right exactly yeah and i think it's a brilliant idea um and and it helps people that are just getting started learn how maybe they know how to talk about what they're doing and all the the good stuff that's going on but really i mean i look at it as like this really cool discussion about where they want to be in the next five to 10 years, because I think you got to put it out there. You know, this is something that they can put 
uh, not necessarily their demo reel, but something they could send right to people, right. you know, when they go out on auditions, like, hey, I already have an interview because a big thing when we audition, we don't audition a lot of people on the same day. We do big gaps because we'll talk to an actor for at least 15 minutes, maybe 10 before yeah. we get into them reading the script because you find out a lot about that person and I'll tailor my directing of them over that, you know, from finding out about them in that interview. Like if they're more experienced, I'll not necessarily be harder on them, but I'll ask more of them. Well, yeah. if they're newer, I'll be easier on them and I'll guide them through more. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. And and to, speaking to that, it's absolutely it's like your verbal resume almost. Exactly. Right? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. So that man, we have got already kind of a great start to to this year. Cause we have some, we have some really good interviews that we already have and we've got others scheduled and we are, like you said, you know, we're, we're already on our path to getting the, the what's next filmmakers and actors. I like that. Yeah. So like that. Larry, yo, in our lifetime as kids, you know, there's a lot of wars that go on. Yes. You know, like to me, the hardest war and the one that scared me most when I was a kid was, of course, the Cola Wars, you know, with Coke, Pepsi, and God <laughs> bless them. <laughs> See, you know, Crown Royal. No, what was it? RC Cola. RC Cola, which yeah. I love RC Cola. It's but no, in all seriousness, we had a lot of fears as a kid. Yeah. Like, you know, what mainly I was always that the Cold War and Russia always terrified me. And I remember there was that time, I think it was late 2020, when again, Russia became a fear again. And I was like, man, that's not the 80s nostalgia we wanted. Right, right. Exactly. And our writer today, who first off, we need to thank him for his service to our country is the main thing like we always do. Um, We end our show every week with remember, support our troops, because me and you have always been vocal about our, you know, boyish patriotism to our country. We're not ashamed of that. But tell everybody a bit more about our guest. Yes, uh, I would like to introduce Mr. Brian J. Mora to the show. Hi, Brian. Welcome. Hello, guys. Great to see you today. Um, Great seeing you. I just yes. want to point out right away to our listeners, he has a Beatles poster in his background and a vinyl player. So he is already one of the coolest guests we've had on ever. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Brian, and and absolutely thank you for your service. Um, talk a little bit because I what I'd like to do. Well, first of all, you are you have what reads and sounds like a great, amazing book. It's called The Able Archers, and it's based on real events, much like, you know, what Eric was talking about in 1983. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I kind of like this. I'm looking at, at your website, which is brianjmora.com. 
And The Able Archers is a novel based on real events chronicling how the world nearly came to an end in autumn of 1983. What? And now, I admittedly, I was like a young pup in 83. Um, But I do know about the Cold War because of history class and, and the History Channel. Tell us a little bit about what your book is about pertaining to 1983. Sure, be be happy to. And uh, it, as you said, 1980s nostalgia is kind of a thing now um, with Stranger Things and other other mm-hmm. things on on television and elsewhere. And this is not the kind of nostalgia we want to repeat, right? Is the fear of a global nuclear war and the war in Ukraine has gotten people's attention again about the threat that Russia can potentially pose. Yeah. Uh, I, if, if I may, I, I'd like to read just a short paragraph from the foreword of the Able Archers oh, and it, it might be a good stage setter for your audience. Yes. In the fall of 1983, the world stood at the brink of nuclear annihilation and almost no one knew it. Everyone learns in school that the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was the greatest single flashpoint of the Cold War. And it was until the events of the fall of 1983. It is my firm view that 1983 was the most dangerous year in human history. So the the Able Archers, so that's that's the quick excerpt from the foreword, but the book, what I've done with the book is um, use the 1983 nuclear war crisis as the centerpiece of this story. Uh, It is a historical novel, so I've taken some liberties with time and personalities and, and all that. And I a lot of folks have asked me why I wrote a novel instead of a nonfiction treatment. And I, there are several reasons, but uh, one of one of the main reasons I think is that I, I thought a novel would capture people's imagination more than a dry history book. And in fact, there have been a couple of good historical treatments of the 1983 crisis that came out in 2018. And I I thought that, uh, and a lot of my friends encouraged me to write because of my own personal involvement in some of the key events of 1983, and that I could give a perspective on those events through my characters that an historian or a journalist simply wouldn't have. Right. Um, so I wanted to bring the story alive. I wanted to humanize the players and, and fundamentally and finally make more people aware of this crisis, because I do think it has a lot of reverberation and, and relevance to what we're facing today and in the, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And and that is crazy because you say it's 1983 and it just occurred to me, this is 2023. And I don't, that's how is it's 40 years, 40 years, 40 40 years. 
Yeah, so this fall will be the 40th anniversary of this crisis, which is, you know, another reason I think the anniversaries like this have a tendency, we humans like to take stock, right, of things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as, as a key milestone is is reached, and and I I think this is the key milestone year to do so for this crisis. And the reason I say that is that up until 2015, most of what I talk about in the Able Archers and and those historians have written about in those other two books I mentioned, all, all of the virtually all the facts were highly classified until 2015. Mm -hmm. And so that's why people don't know about it. They don't know about it because the U.S. government in particular kept uh, most of the events very, very highly classified mm -hmm. uh, until 2015. Some of the some of the key documents are still classified. Wow. Wow. As so as an author and knowing now I let's now you your background is in intelligence, right? And national security. Um yeah. and on your website, you're you're a decorated Air Force intelligence officer, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now what now this is really cool because I don't think we've ever had anybody that is this highly uh decorated or into the government much like you know what you are are you still heavily involved in the government well i'm i i'm not oh, in wait. the government are, but... are you are you at liberty to say <laughs> <laughs> but what i can tell you is i still uh i serve on boards and i do some consulting that um, relates to intelligence and other national security yeah. matters. I still have security clearances and cool. yes. Yeah, so I'm still, I still keep my hand in a bit. Yeah. Did Very you cool. give the order to shoot down the balloon is what Larry's <laughs> trying to get to. <laughs> or well, can I, you not I, answer that? Yeah, I did. I did not. Uh, <laughs> I have my own point of view about that whole episode, but uh, yeah, um, I did not give the order. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, Brian, this has no this has no maybe it does have some merit. This is a this is the kind of stuff you've walked into because uh, honestly, you know, this is this is the only part of government that I really get is what I see from the news and I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Oh, and Twitter, let's not forget Twitter. So, <laughs> you know, all this stuff and this talk and and obviously it it's kind of it is like a, a joking point, but it's not really at all. So anybody kind of listening to this that goes, wow, how could they do that? How could they be so loose? Now you understand, people, we're loose people. So, yeah. Um, and Brian, what's it like for you having written this book and being a part of the intelligence community? And I'm sure since you are still into well, since you are involved in intelligence, do people that that know you and know, you know, what you're about and your background, what do they think about the book? Oh, that's a very good question. I it's it's been interesting. I mean, I, I've gotten 
some terrific endorsements uh, for the Able Archers from very prominent folks who spent their careers in uh, in national security, including Robert Gates, who was former director of CIA and former secretary of defense, um, and uh, uh, also Admiral Jim Stavridis, who was former NATO Supreme Commander, and and a whole host of others. I, I, I've actually, in the book, I've got a, a several pages of endorsements from a lot of four-star generals, four-star officers, and other luminaries. And but I, I think the uh, what is equally meaningful to me, um, I won't say more meaningful, but equally meaningful is that people I I served with forty years ago have gotten in touch with me. They've read the book and or seen articles I've written and have reached out to me. And I haven't heard from some of these people in 40 years and they've been very, very kind and generous with their praise. And, you know, said, you got it exactly right. You got, you know, the tone of how things were and how we operated. And um, one former very senior NSA national security agency guy uh got in touch with me and he said you know i really i i it brought me back i mean i was it i was sitting in those rooms again you know in your book he said this was it was so visceral you know and and that's what i was hoping for and not only that kind of reaction from people in the business but i wanted to elicit that reaction from people who've never had anything to do with the business with wow. the intelligence or national security business. I wanted this to be appealing to people broadly, to men and women and, you know, to everybody uh, from age eight to 88. And, and the reactions I've gotten seem to indicate that I, I hit that mark, you know, that people, if again, they like it, they like it for, it, it is a, it's a great story for one thing, because it's, it's true. And, and most people don't know about it. And I tried to write it in an exciting way and a way that would really engage people. So that's, I, I like to think I achieved most of those objectives. The thing I was trying to get to is I wanted to commend you for doing a, you know, historical fiction because yeah. More people like me would be into reading that. Like as soon as we're done, I'm getting the audiobook. I have a credit available on Audible and I'll be getting it. But you could have done, and I'm sure you're a talented guy, a very well-written historical nonfiction book. But let's be honest, how many people would have read that? Right. You know, right. not very many, I'm guessing, but by adding some you know, spice to it, making it a story, more people are willing to read that and without knowing it, learn about something right. that they would normally not have an interest in. So way to go, Brian, on doing yes. that. Yes. Well, thank you. Yeah. And and actually I've I two of the early readers of the book were two historians um who've written nonfiction books about the 83 crisis. And I was, I approached them with a little bit of trepidation, you know, how are they going to feel about, you know, you're writing a novel about it and, and, uh, and they both read it and, uh, 
they both endorsed the book and and one of them sent me a one word email i think just superb wow so, oh, and, very cool yeah and so that's my hope is it does reach a wider audience because i think more people really as i said at the top of the program i think more people need to understand this yeah. this this series of events because it, it it's chillingly relevant actually to what we're confronting today not only with russia but also with china man that brings up a whole like a whole lot of questions but before i do that i would really be remiss and not not ask you let's get into your book at least a little bit um uh yeah because i'm i'm you know obviously kind of thinking in my head um i i think talk a little bit about the story of your book sure uh and i'll, I'll begin with how i organized the story i wrote it like a three-act play cool and it's in three parts and and i i use first person narration also which is not what you usually find especially in historical novels but i have two first person narrators two different first person narr narrators and one is uh, a young air force intelligence officer who's who's based on me and my experience and he's captain kevin catani um, I gave him an Italian name, like I have an Italian last name. And Catani is actually the family name in my family. So I, I cool. use that name. And and the other first person narrator is a an older, much more experienced uh, Soviet colonel who's in Soviet military intelligence, which in the this in Russian the acronym for that or the abbreviation for Soviet military intelligence is GRU. And some of your listeners might be familiar with that term GRU. So his name is Ivan Levchenko. And Levchenko um, narrates, well, Katani, Captain Katani narrates part one or act one. Um, Levchenko narrates part two. And then in part three, they trade chapters. They one will narrate one, and then the other the the, the next. And um, I, I use that technique because it, for me as a writer, anyway, it was the best way for me to get, you know, the the reader inside these guys' heads, and to have them in the room with them or in the field with them, wherever they might be, and really, you know, gain a perspective from that human dimension of that individual and i wanted to make the, the soviet officer human I, I didn't want him to be an ogre or a you know a, a, a stereotype and I, I wanted him to be a smart guy and a, a guy that understood the world and understood the the stakes that they were dealing with and and humanize you know his perspective for for readers and so that's kind of nuts and bolts how I, I put the, the book together. But the, the first act, part one, which is narrated by the American, the, the, the core event in part one is the Soviets shooting down an, uh, an unarmed Korean 
airline 747 plane, which happened in real life on the 1st of September, 1983. And it's that event that really is the trigger event for a cascading series of events over the next nine or 10 weeks that bring us to the brink of nuclear Armageddon. So, um, and Katani is a central player in that. In fact, I was myself a central player in um, analyzing and reporting on that Korean airline shoot down. So that's the first part of the book is concerning that. And um, the second part of the book is, is again, narrated by the Russian. And he's at the beginning of part two, he's given the orders by um, his superiors in Moscow to go investigate the Korean airline shoot down. So through his investigation, you get to see how the Soviets are viewing the shoot down through their eyes and then, but the core event in part two is another real event that occurred, which occurred on the night of the 27th of September, 1983. And that's when the National Missile Defense Center of the Soviet Union, uh, about 60 miles outside Moscow, detected waves, several waves of intercontinental ballistic missile launches coming from North Dakota. And for the Soviets, it looked like the real thing. And their 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 missile warning satellites were reporting to the Missile Defense Center that the Americans are launching ICBMs at us. And the officer on duty that night, who was the senior officer of the watch center, um, was a Soviet Air Defense Force lieutenant colonel named Stanislav Petrov. And I, he's a character in the book, and I bring him and Levchenko together. And so Levchenko, my character, is actually present that night with Petrov. And the way I bring them together is Levchenko's doing an investigation of U.S. preparations for a nuclear war. So one of the places he stops is this National Missile Defense Center. And he and Petrov happen to be Air Force Academy classmates, so they know each other and they're friends and so on and so forth. So that's the second event is that the U.S. Uh, appears to be attacking the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons. And the Soviets, by the way, have been expecting such an attack. And I give all the background to that in the book. It's not real. It, it wasn't a real attack but it looked like one and Petrov, this colonel made the right decision and he advised his superiors and the Kremlin not to launch retaliatory strikes against the United States. And Petrov was unknown to history um, until around the year 2000, um, but his story is still not well known in the United States. It's a little bit better known in Europe. But his nickname after his story came out was the man who saved the world. Because had Petrov made a different decision that night, it would have been Armageddon. And one of the things to note, I think, for your listeners is that in 1983, the nuclear arsenals of the Soviet Union in the United States dwarfed the nuclear weapons that we had in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
So had we had a nuclear war in 1962, it would have been horrible. But if we had a war in 1983, it would have been a human extinction event. Wow. So that that the scale and the scope is different in 83 than it was in 62. And then part three of the book, um, I bring the two characters together and they they meet in East Germany at a real place, which I also frequented back in the day, um, on the other side of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall was still up. And um, a U.S. facility where the two of my two main characters meet to try to quell the third and final crisis, which is that in the first 10 days or so of November 1983, uh, NATO and the United States conducted the, its largest nuclear war exercise in history. And this is coming at a time of really heightened tension after the Korean airline shoot down. The Soviets are on pins and needles because of this incident with Colonel Petrov, which we didn't even know about. We didn't know about until 2000. And But tensions are off the charts. Reagan was president and Dropoff is the chief guy in the, in the Kremlin. They're not talking at all. Unlike during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Kennedy and Khrushchev were talking every day, and both formally and informally, and they were both trying to quell the crisis. In '83, nothing like that was happening. So, in '80, I, what I do in the book is I have my two heroes kind of come together and and work with their superiors to try to dampen down this crisis, which is totally getting out of hand. And it really did get almost completely out of hand um, by the 10th of November, 1983. And we avoided a nuclear war just by the narrowest of margins. And so that's the third and final part of the book. But it so it's a, it's a story of how... Uh, not understanding your adversary can get you into deep trouble. Not communicating with your adversary can get you into worse trouble. Um, having misconceptions about your adversary is almost even worse. Thinking you know your adversary, <laughs> as both sides did. They both thought, well, I know what they're doing. You know, we thought that about the Soviets and they thought out about us. And both of us were wrong about the other. So misconceptions can lead to catastrophic decisions. And we, again, nearly found ourselves stumbling into a, a global nuclear war without even realizing it. You know, I like I just showed you, I literally just got the book off of Audible <laughs> because what you said about it reminds me of The Hunt for Red October, how yeah. at the end scene, you know, the... The Russians are speaking Russians. The Americans are speaking English. But as soon as the word Armageddon is mentioned, everybody can understand what the person's saying. So, yeah, I really can't wait to listen to the book tonight. And it's such a compelling story. And yeah. then a little horror, really horrifying thinking, oh, my God, this really happened. And not that. 
happens present tense too because i mean there's been so many 9-11s that didn't happen because intelligence took care of it before it had a chance to and i feel we're so jaded by the government that we don't take time to think about the boots on the ground guys like you who are stopping things from happening so thank thank you that i'm still alive today (laughs) well yeah it is kind of frightening and that is something else that readers of the able archers have brought up which is oh my god you know this book one of the scariest things about this book is that in each of the three major events the right man was at the right place at the right time what if it had been someone different right I mean, it was such a narrow thread that kept us, um, you know, from stumbling into a nuclear war. And if I may, just a, a thought on the audio book. Um, it is read by two different actors. Awesome. Wow. Okay. Very uh, cool. Because of the two yeah. narrators. And um, one is an American actor and the other is, I think he's an American, but he's Russian-American. And he does Levchenko just brilliantly. Uh, they both are great, but the, the to have a Russian reading Levchenko is just, it's it stunning. It adds that spice yeah. to it, of it yeah. as opposed to just someone without doing a Russian accent. Yes. 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 How long did it take you to write the book? Like yeah. how many different drafts? Well, I think to get it into final form, um, yeah, it something between a year and 18 months, I guess, to get it in final form. Um, and I, I also have to send, and, and this book I should mention is the first in a series I'm writing with the same two main characters and the others have yet to have not been published yet. I'm hoping to get book two out before the end of this year. Um, but, Uh, All of my books, including the Able Archers, have to go through the clearance process with the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. And and I I had wonderful people to work with in the government who extremely professional, terrific um, civil servants who really served me well. And um, and and served the interests of the United States. Well, in the Able Archers, I didn't have to redact anything. I, I was a bit surprised that they let everything through because I am revealing some things, but um, they, again, they worked with me and they worked with the intelligence agencies and and everybody approved it. Um, some of the other books I've written, I've had more significant redactions required, which is fine. I mean, I, I'll, I do them because I'm told to. And, and, and in, uh, in fact, they really don't, the redactions I've had to make don't affect the storyline. So I'm fine with those. It's mostly people and places that they're concerned about, which I get. So, yeah. yeah. You know, as, as I listen to you to talk about your book in three acts, I'm, I'm flabbergasted and thinking to myself, is this, this is real. This is, this is what you're describing. Obviously the characters like they are, I guess the characters are based on real people, right? But but yeah, the American's actual... based on me. And, yeah, yeah. And the, and the Soviet is based on. He's kind of a blend of 
Soviet KGB and GRU officers I knew, I, I took kind of the best characteristics of those guys and I blended them together into my Levchenko character. Yeah. That's pretty cool. But, but, but the events that you just described, those are, I, okay. I may, I think I'm pretty simple, but just to make sure those events that you just talked about, they really happened and they existed like that. Yeah, those events, those three crises really, really Unbelievable. happened. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, and it was within a short amount of, a yeah. relatively short amount of time. It was over from the 1st of September to about the 10th of November, 1983. Yeah. See, and, and that's what I was about to say, because even wasn't like the, uh, I don't know about the Cuban missing, missile crisis, but it seems like every event that is like that happens. It doesn't happen over years. That happens within a short amount of time in this window. And I, I, I kid you not. It feels like an absolute movie. And the Hunt for Red October, Eric, is absolutely. I was like, oh my god, this is like Hunt for Red October. This is Jack Ryan. Yeah. This is everything. This is everything. Absolutely amazing. And here's my stealth way of bringing up the something we talked about. You know, this sounds like it would make a great movie or TV series. <laughs> what are the odds on that happening, Brian? Well, I'm happy to say that we do have we have a an option deal with Legendary Entertainment, and we signed that in August, uh, and. I met with Legendary just a few weeks ago in, in Los Angeles, and it their intention is if they if they get the right partnership together, they're going to make a television series. Wow! And um, they have mentioned it might be an eight part series. They're kind of already kind of thinking about how it would be constructed. And when I met with them, they talked with me and my wife quite a bit about story and you know what i what i wanted to see or what we wanted to see brought out because my wife has been my story editor and partner throughout this whole process so um yeah so the legendary tv deal is uh, we have the option and and we're keeping our fingers crossed that they are able to get a streaming partner soon and wow. and hopefully get into production or at least get on the production schedule. Yeah. <laughs> busy yeah. guys, I know. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's wonderful. Um, it was unexpected and that we would, you know, get that kind of attention uh, with the first book. But they seem really, really motivated to do it. Uh, the senior executives at Legendary, and they've been nothing but terrific, you know, in dialogue with me. And I, I couldn't be happier Good. Uh, with them. And, uh, and look forward to a good partnership once we get a final production deal going. Good, good, man. Congratulations. So, Unbelievable. Yeah. Congratulations. You know, that that is the spirit of, I don't know if this is a correct, maybe Eric and Brian, you have a thing about this, but this is why I think creative people do what they do. Because there is that possibility of, getting it picked up, getting your book picked up and and made into a, a movie or a series. Um, I mean, I, am I wrong in saying that? I hope not. No. I 
No, I mean, I, I didn't think, honestly, I didn't think that much about that potential. Um, but I guess as I finished the book and the book got out there, you, you can't help but wonder, boy, and, and especially when people were reading the book and the feedback I was getting was, oh, my God, this would make a tremendous movie or right. a TV series. Right. And, and a lot of people, in fact, compared it to The Hunt for Red October. Yeah. And uh, I'm you know, flattered, humbled to say that a lot of people have said, I haven't read a book in this genre this good since The Hunt for Red October. Oh, wow. And, That's pretty you know, so... It, yeah, it's been uh, it's been unexpected and and terrific, and hopefully we'll you know get things moving here in the next year or so. Oh yeah, and um, and then I I also uh, Netflix is producing; they're in the midst of producing a documentary series on the Cold War. This is part of their Turning Point series. The last big turning point documentary that was produced and aired was on 9 11 oh, wow. and that came out on the 20th anniversary of 9 11 so it'll be you know two years ago this fall yeah. and um netflix is planning an eight-part series on the cold war and they are planning for one of the episodes to be focused on the 1983 nuclear war crisis and they've mm. They've interviewed me pretty extensively for that particular episode, and um, fingers crossed. Hope I, I I can't speak for Netflix and their production schedule, so don't yeah. hope to this. But they're hoping to get it out before the end of this year. Yeah. Um, it's a really big project, and I met with uh, one of the producers when I was in Los Angeles recently, and he said, "Gosh, we had no idea how big this project was when we took it on," and you know, so it. <laughs> It's possible it might slip into next calendar year, but um, but I'm sure they'll do a wonderful job. They did a great job with the 9-11 documentary. It won, I think, a bunch of Emmys. And wow. so, yeah, fingers crossed on that one, yes. too, that'll yes. come out. And and spoken like a true producer, we had no idea what the size <laughs> of this <laughs> yeah. like Yeah, that's great. You have a lot of great... you. You have a lot of great things, Brian, yeah. going on. And congratulations, because this is this is what I think, again, to go back to everybody that goes to Los Angeles or even now, you know, like wants to be an actor, wants to be a filmmaker. There's that there's that chance. There's that opportunity that always exists. And and talking about this, um, about being creative. Um there is one thing that I do want to ask is how how did you how did you first find that you should write this book? Do you remember like the moment when you go, "Oh, I got to write this?" Was there a moment? Yes, there was actually. I I had been thinking for years it would be it would be an interesting thing to do to write about some of the experiences I had um, back in the eighties, not just the evil archers, but other things. But at, when I was working full-time, I never had time to do it. And then I also had to be concerned about classification because so much of, you know, these, these events, not only the able archers, but others were highly classified. So 
Um, I didn't really start thinking about it uh, seriously until a couple years, till 2018, I think. And um, when the when those nonfiction books came out, and I read those, and I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to write a nonfiction book because there are two good ones out. But I, I was having a conversation with um, a friend of mine who's a former senior government he was under secretary of defense and stuff and and i was explaining to him you know i kind of like to write about this era but i don't think i should do nonfiction. so i guess i won't do anything because i can't write fiction and he he said why don't you write a novel about it because you can bring your personal experience to light and you can bring the story to life like historians couldn't and his famous quote to me was it'll probably suck but <laughs> if you write a novel but maybe it won't and so oh I kind of that was sort of the moment when I I took that as a challenge and said okay I'm gonna when I get home I'm gonna start writing so <laughs> that was the moment I guess <laughs> and I've, I've I've mentioned that to him several times since you know that you you dared me to do this, so <laughs> you were the catalyst to <laughs> yeah. have me write. Though that that's really cool. That's Here's really cool. Here's a question I have. I didn't mean to cut you off, Larry. A lot of our listeners are pretty young, and mm -hmm. I don't know what they teach in schools. Could you, for those younger, give like a third grade explanation? of what the cold war actually was. Cause I don't oh, yeah. think a lot of people yeah. know what it is anymore. Okay. I'll do my best. <laughs> well, I, I think. Uh, like if you were explaining it to an 11 year old, how would you explain it? Yeah. I, I would say that uh, after world war two ended, um, the United States and the Soviet Union were the two most powerful countries in the world. And each had a very different view of how the world ought to be organized. Um, they had very different economies, very different societies in many ways. And shortly, not too many years after the war ended, the Soviet Union and the United States, who had been allies during World War II, became really quite bitter adversaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that from, let's say, the late 1940s until the early 1990s, uh, we had tensions that were termed the Cold War. And they were termed the Cold War because both sides both the U.S. and the Soviet Union were trying not to have a hot war. They didn't want to have a major hot war between the two nations. Um, but the Cold War, unfortunately, was characterized by a, a lot of periods of severe tension that almost led to nuclear war and also by a lot of smaller wars that unfortunately led to a lot of people losing their lives. One example would be the Korean War, another the Vietnam War. Um, so the Cold War actually was hot at times, but it was it was cold in the sense that the United States and the Soviet Union 
themselves never came into direct combat with each other. But it was an era where people grew up fearing nuclear weapons and fearing that nuclear war might be just around the corner. Uh, and uh, I remember, I rem I'm old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I was a little, real little kid, but I remember we were evacuated from school and we were sent home. And it, so it was a scary time in many ways, but, um, but at the same time, there was peace, a relative peace between the two big countries. They didn't come to an actual war. So that's how I would characterize the Cold War. I remember hearing it explained as America and Russia absolutely hated each other, but we promised not to do anything about it. Yeah, not anything big. Big is it, the best did, way to put it. Yeah, we did a lot of small wars. Um, and and as my book points out, we almost did something big. <laughs> too, yeah. So. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I know, you know, I don't want to really get into it, but like the stuff that's happened with Ukraine and Russia now, I, is there any, and maybe similarities isn't the exact term, but that's, what's kind of coming to my mind right now. Is there anything that you look at, at the situation in Ukraine and between UK, Ukraine and Russia and say, Hmm, that sounds familiar. Yes, there are a lot of things, unfortunately. Oh, man. And I'm not the first person to point that out, I think. But uh, I think, as I've said earlier, some of the themes of the able archers is that bad things happen or can happen when you have miscommunication, misunderstanding, and miscalculation. And I think we've got all three of those going on between Russia and the United States and NATO in general right now. And that means that, and I believe that the longer the war in Ukraine goes on, that the, the higher the probability, the greater the chance that something bad is going to happen. I mean, it's bad already, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It's a terrible war, but that something causing an escalation will occur. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Is it is it not safe to say, but does it feel like it's the Cold War again between Russia and the U.S.? And in in a way, because of what's happened with Ukraine, because there's a lot of people, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And, you know, I mean, growing up in the 80s and, and understanding, you know, about like the Berlin Wall and stuff, but... Mm -hmm. Is there is there a sense that it's kind of gone back to that between Russia and the U.S.? I think that it's not a one for one similarity, you know, between today and the Cold War, yeah. but there are a lot of similarities, and I think Russia is what's frightening about Russia today is that is it's so estranged from the rest of the developed world yeah. and uh, it, and that's happened really since 2014 since they took over Crimea and it's just mm. kind of devolved since then deteriorated since then so there are cer certainly 
elements of a Cold War kind of scenario. And I, unfortunately, I think the same is true in regard to China. I think that our relations with China have bear some of the hallmarks, some similarities with the Cold War kind of situation. They're not, again, one for one, but we've just seen over the last week with this balloon incident yeah. um, and, and how miscalculation can erode confidence on each other's side. You know, it. I, I, I think it's safe to say that, well, my opinion is the Chinese didn't intend for us to be able to see this balloon with the naked eye, you know? (laughs) And uh, so I think to that degree, it may be an unintentional act, but it's, it, it it was an intentional act. Right. 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 So yes, that's what I worry about that. I worry about, and, and China, the other thing that most people aren't aware of is that China is, it has completely changed its nuclear strategy just in the last oh, eight years or so. Wow. And from the time they developed nuclear weapons in the 1950s until about eight or nine years ago, their strategy was nuclear, what they called nuclear sufficiency. That is, they would keep they would keep enough nuclear weapons around as like a poison pill oh, so that the U.S. is never going to attack us because we've got these nukes and they're just not going to mess with us, even though we don't have that many. We just have a couple of hundred nukes. They're still not going to mess with us. They've now changed to a, a declared policy of nuclear superiority. So they are building up their nuclear forces at a rate that um, we can't match or we're not even, we're not, maybe don't need to match, but it's, mm. they're building a nuclear force. They want to be the premier nuclear force in the world, bigger than the Russians, bigger than the U.S., and that's a stated goal of theirs. So, uh, and they will probably achieve it in less than 10 years. Oh, so that sounds an awful lot like the conditions for a new cold war. Right. I mean, right, it, it, right, right, right. Yeah. And oh, I man, really this, wish this... I didn't ask that question because my mood went from high <laughs> to, oh, God. I have that. I need, that, the, that, I need that, to make uh, a bomb yeah. shelter, start buying MKs, <laughs> you know. Wait, meals ready to eat? Oh, yeah. God. But, yeah. I mean, you know, I think, oh, man, Brian, I don't know. We we should really have you back on to just to discuss. <laughs> because I don't think people understand, like, really what's going on. And it's, this is, this is the, this is a dangerous part because everybody's on Twitter. Everybody's everywhere. Everybody's got a voice. And, and it's highly important. And I don't think people understand the history of the way things were. And I don't know if they care because, you know, Beyonce won and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I I think it's highly important for people to understand that this is a real thing. It, It may feel like a movie when you watch it because everybody's so detached, but this is real. This is this is clear and present danger, I think. Um, and I'm, it may be exaggerated, but with all the, you know, all the, the people, I, everybody wants peace, but you know, when, when people around you are starting to 
to gather all these things and and we as people knowingly see this and do nothing about it that is probably the most frightening thing that that you know people are just like and this is how i feel may not be oh it's okay we're not going to have our weapons they're going to have theirs but they're not going to do anything cuz we're nice and i you know this is like a whole nother podcast thing yeah this is like a yeah this is crazy but we'll have this is... you back on to talk more yes. political stuff but again here's the thing if you would have written a non-fiction book about this It'd be the like, odds okay. on you coming on here might not have happened but because you went a fiction route you got me and larry talking Boom. and thinking and i'm more yeah. than sure there's yeah. i don't know what your sales numbers are but I'm sure there's a lot of people who were looking for a hunt for Red October kind of read or something like yes. that. And, you know, found your book and are now thinking more about stuff. And only through fiction, you can do that. And yeah. so, yeah. yeah, you got, again, I'm going to be, you know, playing a game and listening to your book later on tonight yes. when, I, when I'm all said and done for my night. And Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Actually, and and I guess maybe the last thing I'll say is that to your point, Secretary, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates said almost the same thing in his endorsement. He said, I, I won't read the whole thing, but the first sentence he wrote is, quote, occasionally a work of fiction is best suited to bring little known but dangerous historical events to life. Mm. Close quote. So I couldn't say it any better than that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Brian, I know I went, a, I, man, I went off on a tangent, huh? <laughs> but, but yes. honestly, we, we will have you back once, once everything with Netflix, you know, picks up and you get a release date. We'd love to have you back on to talk about, you know, uh, stuff with Netflix. Um, and who knows? I mean, you know, if you're up for it, would like to, you know, possibly have you back and talk about more political stuff in a good way, because sure. I think it's highly important. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Brian, sure. again, we Enjoy just want to thank you so much for coming on and stirring a conversation amongst everybody. Um, links to where you can purchase the book will be in the description of this if you're listening in on Anchor. And when the episode goes up, we will have all of the links on our social media. Again, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. And you know what? Our closeout has never been as poignant yeah. as it is today. Remember, everybody, support our troops. <laughs>